topic for this morning is being spiritual. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? I don't know about you guys, but this phrase, uh, being spiritual, reminds me of growing up in the church. It was something we said and heard a lot. Uh, One of the things we would say is certain people are spiritual, or other people weren't so spiritual. Or we'd say things like, this activity is really spiritual, this one's not spiritual. And we weren't really quite sure what it meant to be spiritual, but we knew it mattered. I have other friends who also consider themselves spiritual people, but in kind of a a different sense. Uh, For some of them, uh, it means that they're part of, of something that's not an organized religion. They're spiritual, but not religious. They have some connection to, to God, they live some type of ethical life. Uh, for others, maybe it's a connection to an actual religion, some type of Eastern religion, maybe. I even heard a podcast a few weeks ago by Sam Harris, who's a well-known atheist. Um, he was talking about even despite being an, an atheist, he considers himself a very spiritual person. Very interesting. So a lot of people are concerned about being spiritual. We know this is a goal, but what does it really mean? The Apostle Paul was also concerned about being spiritual. He uses that word all over the place. In fact, we're, uh, we're studying 1 Corinthians. We're moving into a section of the book that's going to use that word a lot. And he means something very specific by it, actually. He means a life that's animated and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is what we're going to be leaning into this morning. What does Paul mean by spirituality? Uh, if you, if this, all this discussion of the Holy Spirit sounds kind of, I don't know what this means. Nate Walker actually gave an excellent sermon a few weeks ago. You can look it up online uh, where he tells uh, some of the fundamentals of the Holy Spirit. But what we're going to see is a life that is spiritual has, not surprisingly, three points to it. Transformation, teaching, and a new kingdom with new loyalties. So we're going to look at these three things, teaching, transformation, and kingdom life. But first, let me read our passage. This is on page 10 of the bulletin or one of your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and that you are uh, making yourself known. And we pray that as we discuss the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that he would be here present teaching us, ministering to us, that he would teach us about your gospel uh, and what a life uh, empowered and directed by the Spirit looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the spiritual life, point one, is marked by transformation. What the Holy Spirit is trying to do, he's, he's working deep down inside of us to create an inside-out change that we can't create on our own. In fact, the Bible is very dramatic in the way that it articulates this. It even goes so far, so far to say that what the Holy Spirit is trying to do is turn us into a new species. It's kind of strange. New species. What does he mean by this? Well, This change is not something weird, like where we grow gills and we can start breathing underwater, something like that. This change is actually a moral, spiritual change, where the Holy Spirit is taking our impulses towards isolation, towards arrogance, towards vengefulness, towards um, 
uh, uh, not wanting to have God and others involved in our lives bothering us. And he's replacing that with something different. He's replacing it with compassion, with patience, with humility, the desires to receive and uh, have from others. We often hear people talking about godliness. Holy Spirit is trying to produce godliness in us. What godliness means is not just being a moral person or a nice guy. Godliness means God is trying to make us like himself. It means that his, his virtues, his, his, like his patience, compassion, things like this, actually become part of us. What the Holy Spirit is trying to do is something we can't do on ourselves, which is change the actual DNA of our soul. We can change a lot of things about ourselves. We can make resolutions. We can make habits. We can change some of our responses to things, but we can't actually change ourselves from the inside out. And that's what the Holy Spirit is after. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that the spiritual life involves transformation? I think one of the things that matters, one of the reasons it matters, uh, is because it means there's always hope for change. It means that no matter how desperate, how difficult our situation, there is a resource outside of ourselves that is actually greater than us. I think it means that we have the freedom to be helpless before God, that we can actually rip our shirts off and shout at God and say, I can't fix this, and God will actually come and promises to be gracious and meet us there. It means a freedom from a life marked by failed resolutions. I always feel like this. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's freedom from a, a self-improvement plan where we're promising to ourselves, we won't do it again. We'll be different. And what happens? We always do it. And you become miserable. <laughs> and right? It's freedom from a life marked by this. Here's what it also means. It means we no longer have to to gauge our relationship with God on how we're feeling. What's that about? Well, Paul is addressing a specific issue in the Corinthian church, and it has to do with the, the testimony of the Corinthian Christians. Uh, before they were Christians, they were part of a kind of uh, a cult that really privileged ecstatic, sensational experiences. And they would uh, likely do rituals, they would make sacrifices, and they would have these experiences where they start speaking in weird things. They start kind of going crazy. And then they become Christians, and then the Holy Spirit comes, he gives spiritual gifts, and he gives a particular kind of gift called tongues. We're going to talk about tongues later this summer. But through the gift of tongues, they would start speaking in strange languages. And it reminded them of their past, where they thought because they're having these ecstatic these experiences, they must be especially spiritual. And what Paul is saying is that our spirituality is not located in some resource we have to offer other people, but it's actually located in uh, God's promise to us, which, which is an entirely different way of relating to God. Sometimes we feel God's presence. Sometimes we feel his absence. And, but God's love for us, his commitment to us, never changes uh, depending on those. Here's another thing it means to be spiritual. Not only that God is committed to transforming us, but he's committed to teaching us. The Holy Spirit, one of his main jobs is to actually teach us about who God is. In fact, there's this huge section of the Gospel of John, several books long. It's the longest section on the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And the primary thing that it says is that the Holy Spirit is coming to teach us about God and to teach us about ourselves. 
He does this through uh, giving us ideas about who God is. He does this through conversations with other people where we, we get insights into uh, Scripture and what it looks like to apply it into our lives. I'm reminded of a, an experience I had in seminary a few years ago. I was reading some type of academic Bible book, and the author was saying, the Bible doesn't really say Jesus died for your sins. I was like, oh my gosh. That's, this guy's way smarter than me. <laughs> Maybe it's true. And then I read down a few other places. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Maybe it's true that the Bible doesn't teach Jesus died for your sins. And you know what I did? I said, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to figure out uh, the answer to this problem right here, this riddle. And so I uh, started reading books. I read some articles. And it only just made me more and more confused. Then I had this bright idea. I thought to myself, maybe Jesus actually wants to teach me who he is. <laughs> maybe God actually wants to teach me about himself, and I'm not on my own trying to figure this out. And so what I did is I started praying about it, and I went and asked a couple other people. I said, would you pray for me with a specific issue? I feel really confused about this. And then what happened? Literally one week after people praying, uh, I came across this article, and it was this total random thing, and it, this guy made a very convincing argument that the Bible really does say Jesus died for your sins. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, it's true. It's absolutely true. <laughs> it's not just true theologically, it's true for me as well. And God used a number of different people uh, over the next handful of months to kind of convince me of this. And so what was happening there was not just circumstantial things, I came across this or had that conversation, but was God responding to a prayer to graciously teach me about himself. This is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that he gives us intuitions and ideas and conversations that reveal God and who uh, we are. But there's a deeper way, and I think a little bit more of a provocative way that the Spirit speaks to us, and that is the Spirit doesn't just speak to us through ideas in our head. The Spirit actually speaks to us in an auditory voice. <laughs> Kind of a wild idea. Let me, let me explain this. If, if you were um, uh, in a sermon a few weeks ago when Nate was preaching about women in ministry, one of the things he taught about in worship is that worship is really this discussion, this dialogue back and forth between us and God. So God speaks to us. We speak back to God. And we do it again and again and again. And that's kind of the, the makeup of our service, this back and forth. And what, what this speaking is, it's not a beautiful metaphor, like how nice would it be if God spoke to me? What's actually happening is God is speaking to us in the service. How does he do this? Well, he's taking the words of the past and he's making them words spoken to us here. And that just as Jesus walked with his disciples, taught them, communicated to them, he in a very real way is present with us here speaking to us. And he does it through representatives. You know, I'll, I'll be kind of vulnerable with you guys. One of the things for me, I got ordained last week, very special for me. And um, uh, it's, it's very special, but it's also been, honestly, a very kind of sobering, serious, even fearful thing for me to lean into, to be honest. And one of the, the reasons for this is this idea that God's representatives are his actual mouthpieces to the church. That in a real way, God is actually speaking to the church. 
And this is, this is something uh, we actually experience all over the place in life. Let me kind of, uh, I told the first service, put your philosophical caps on. Let's, let's put our philosophical caps on just for a minute. When we speak, there's kind of two things going on. There's the actual words we say or words we write down. But then there's the things we actually do with those words. So there's the words and the things you do with the words. So you might say, I do, I do. Those are the words, but what's happening with that? Two people are promising themselves to each other. And what can happen in the way language works is you have some people who are offering the words, but then somebody else who's actually doing the doing, if you will. So a secretary may write out something um, for their executive that they work for. They may even sign it. But what happens when they sign that executive's name on that line, that actually becomes the wishes of that executive. Even though those weren't his or her words in some way, there's actually the, the, uh, the wishes of the executive being expressed through that document. And something like this is happening in our worship service, is that God is actually speaking to us in a very real, strange way. <laughs> You're very excited about that. So. <laughs> um, but God is actually speaking to us. Um, and so why does this matter? What's special about this? Well, um, you know, I think one of the things that I feel sometimes is uh, I feel God's absence in a way. Like, I feel his presence, but I also feel that he's absent in some way. Like, you guys are present to me right now in the way that Jesus isn't present. You know, and so we can sometimes feel his presence, but it's not, I don't see him, I don't hear him, taste him, things like that. And what Jesus is doing to us is he's making himself present to us in a special way. That we can actually, in a real way, have his words spoken to us. It means that the love of God is really no further than the person sitting next to us. Both through uh, what happens at a worship service and as people are using their gifts to speak God's promises to each other. Here's the last thing. Not only is the spiritual life marked by transformation and teaching, it's also marked by a new kingdom with new loyalties. Let me read verse 3 to you. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What Paul in, in this passage is, is saying is something that would have been very provocative for the Corinthian church that we don't appreciate as much. And it's that line in there, Jesus is Lord. We're used to hearing this all the time. It seems like a very normal thing. It would not be a normal thing to the Corinthian church. And to make sense of this, I need to tell you about a guy that lived the century before this letter was written. This particular individual came from a very well-off family. Uh, he was very ambitious. He was talented. He was confident. Uh, one of the stories that people shared about him in his youth was that he was traveling from ancient Greece to Rome, and he was captured by pirates. And the pirates knew his family had some money. And so they said, we're going to ransom him for 20 talents of silver. And he's very cocky and arrogant. He said, make it 50. <laughs> I'm a big deal. Ransom me for 50 talents of silver. And then while he's in their custody, he says, I'm going to hunt you guys down. I'm going to kill you. That works in the movies. It does not work in real life. Do not tell your captors that. What does he do? He escapes. 
They paid the ransom. He actually comes back to Rome, raises a levy, creates an a, a, a armada, and actually hunts down the ship, the, the pirates, and crucifies all of them. He kept his word. He later joined the military. Uh, he invaded uh, modern-day France, even uh, pushing into um, uh, Germany and parts of uh, Britain. And he was considered one of the most successful military generals in the history of the world. People still think this about him. He has very few rivals. But what he was doing was actually very illegal. What he would be doing was kind of the equivalent of, say, one of our modern-day generals uh, saying, I'm just going to go start invading countries on my own. Wasn't authorized by it. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go start doing this. And so that's not very cool. The Senate said, you need to come back. And so uh, he comes back, but he knows he's going to be held uh, accountable if he does decide to come back. So he takes his army with him. And he ends up conquering Rome, takes control of Rome. And then he travels all over the Mediterranean, hunting down his rivals. And he comes back, and he establishes himself as Caesar. And in history, he was known as Julius Caesar. And he was the very first emperor of Rome. And uh, what would happen, he made a lot of enemies. And he was still in the middle of his career. His, 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 uh, had much more success ahead of him. And one day, he showed up on a Senate floor. And one of the senators comes up to him and clubs him. And then dozens of senators come up after that, and they beat him to death. And he was stabbed and beaten to death on the floor of the Senate. And his son, Caesar Augustus, takes his body and has a giant ceremony. And during the ceremony, there was a comet that actually stayed in the sky for seven days. And he said, see, that's Julius up there. He's with the gods. He must be divine. And what that started was the cult of the emperor, where the emperor was always associated with the deities. And uh, this emperor would come by, be known by a number of different names. Some people would call him son of God. Other people would call him Lord. Other people would call him Savior. And it was a very dangerous thing to not worship the emperor because it was more than just a kind of blasphemy. It was actually treason because the emperor represented the government. And so for a, a Christian, the call Jesus Lord would have been a very provocative thing. Just a handful of years after Caesar was murdered on the floor of the Senate, another king was born to a young blue-collar family in the northern podunk part of northern Israel. And he would learn his father's trade, and he would begin a ministry where he called himself king. And the very last day of his life before he was unjustly murdered, he had this profound statement. I think it's one of the most profound statements in the Gospels is my kingdom is not of this world. And what he's saying by that is not like, hey, I've got this kind of heavenly, weird thing going on on the side. He's saying, my kingdom is not like Caesar's kingdom. I'm trying to do something a whole lot different than what Caesar's doing. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's taking us, people who don't really have a vision for that, people who struggle with leaning into Jesus that way, and he's giving us new hearts that are loyal to Jesus as king. Just as Caesar required for absolute loyalty, the Holy Spirit is working in that total loyalty to Jesus. 
He's also training us to live by new principles of Christ's kingdom and not Caesar's kingdom. Caesar's kingdom was marked by taking. In Christ's kingdom, everything is a gift. In fact, Jesus says, the riches of my kingdom are yours. It costs you nothing. Caesar's kingdom, the weak are forgotten. But in Jesus' kingdom, there are his principal concerns. The, the apple of God's eye, in many ways, is the people who are weak and marginalized. Caesar himself wanted to crush and to trample all of his enemies, and yet Jesus takes his enemies and makes them his friends, brings them into his family. I was talking with someone recently uh, who became a Christian as an adult, uh, and they have a, a background uh, in Eastern religions. They'd spent decades uh, operating out of... Um, uh, living in, in a, a Buddhist lifestyle. And they were, I was asking them, what is it about um, Christianity that was so convincing? And what they said was, it's not a self-improvement plan. That Jesus himself is actually offering to, uh, to change us and to, to work in us. And this is what we see with the Apostle Paul here, is that the spiritual life is really an invitation to experience God's grace. Not only does God forgive us, but he's committed us to making us into different people. Whenever God asks us to do something, he always gives us the resources to do it. And this is a big ask. He wants us to be like Jesus, but he's promised himself, the third person of the Trinity, to be our helper in this. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace that it sees us through uh, and not only brings us into your kingdom, uh, but it makes us faithful subjects in your kingdom. Lord, would you uh, give us more of your Holy Spirit? Would he uh, help us to bend a knee to Jesus, to incline our ears to him, to be more like him? We ask for his work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.